On January 5th of uh, this year, Alaska Airlines Flight 1282, a Boeing 737 MAX 9, was climbing at 16,000 feet when four bolts that were holding the door plug, a rear door plug, came loose. The door plug came, uh, flew out, uh, landed in somebody's backyard. Uh, the plane made an emergency landing, but nobody got hurt. Uh, well, except one young man who lost his shirt that was sucked outside. Now, if this would have happened in cruising altitude, 30,000 or beyond, this would have ended really badly. Nobody would probably have survived it. And you may remember stories of planes that uh, lost uh, pressurization and, uh, and crashed because everybody died instantly. I mean, your blood just freezes. Now, I am a pilot, you know that, and, and I love aviation. And in fact, I have an inspirational, inspirational picture uh, hung in my office uh, of an FA-18 uh, landing uh, on an aircraft carrier. So it landed, uh, the hook uh, arrested uh, with the wire. Uh, that picture is an inspirational picture about trust, obviously. And the subtitle there is the only, or trust is the only quality that matters when it's down to the wire. Now, when you fly, do you need to trust? Who do you trust when you fly? You trust the pilot? You trust the airplane? You trust God? You trust yourself? Who do the pilots trust? Do they trust the plane? Do they trust the instruments? Do they trust themselves? I'm going to discuss in this episode three incidents, unfortunately, all of them involving fatal crashes, based on NTSB reports, the National Transportation Safety Board reports. That's the organization that um, uh, reviews what happened, finds the reason. By the way, there is a great TV show that I like on the Smithsonian Channel called Air Disasters. I'll tell you up front, you don't want to watch it while you're flying on a plane. And you definitely don't want to make the person sitting next to you watch it. Um, and, and what I like about it, it's it's not really about the crashes as it is about the investigation and finding out what was the reason for the crash. The three incidents I'll talk about in this episode are Continental Flight 1713 in 1987, the JFK Jr. crash, uh, and the uh, Ethiopia Air Boeing 737 MAX 8, and, and another uh, crash uh, in Indonesia um, within months uh, from one another. All of this is going to be based on NTSB reports. I'm not going to offer my own explanation of what happened and why it happened, but I'm going to discuss the trust implication of those stories right after this. Welcome to The Trust Show. I'm Yoram Solomon, your host, the author of The Book of Trust and facilitator of The Trust Habits Workshop. My mission is simple. I want to help you form habits that build your trustworthiness because the answer to this question will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? Before I start talking about uh, the three specific incidents, uh, let's start with who do you trust when you fly and why do you need to trust? 
you know, I, I'm going back to my my original explanation of what trust is, why is trust needed? And it's really starting with uh, no risk, no reward, right? So we take risks when we fly, and I'll talk about that. But the reason we do that is because there is a reward. What, what is the reward to fly, for flying? I mean, some of us just like flying, enjoy being in an airplane. You know, even if you're not going anywhere, you're going to fly back. Uh, I, I used to love flying, just flying myself around and landing in the same place where I started. Um, for most, in most cases, in commercial aviation, it's to save time compared to the alternative of driving a car. It's uh, convenience, again, uh, compared to the alternative of driving a car or train. And um, so there is a reward, and the reward is pretty significant. I mean, you really save a lot of time. You really uh, fly or, or go in a much more convenient way than if you had to drive for, uh, uh, I don't know, 24 hours. I, I don't know how long it takes to, fly, to drive right now from Plano to, uh, let's say, Orlando. So I'm, I'm sure that it's somewhere in the 18, 20 hours compared to a two-hour flight. So that's the reward. That's why we do that. What's the risk? What is, what's the worst thing that can happen? Well, you die, right? So now, uh, I think I mentioned that before, that it's right. It's not really the risk as it is the fear of the risk materializes that, that uh, requires us to trust people. But in this case, you know, if, if the risk is that you die, I'm going to guess that it doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank, how old you are, or, or a lot of other, other considerations, you don't want to die. You're afraid of dying, right? So... Whatever it is, the risk goes below your fear or risk and fear tolerance. So you're you're not willing to take it. You, you don't feel safe if you had to take that risk as is. You're afraid of it, most likely. How do you compensate for it? Well, you compensate for it via trust. So trust is what takes you from the level of risk that you need to take in order to get the reward that you want to get, to get you above your risk tolerance bar. So that's why you have to trust when you fly. But, but who do you trust? Well, unless you're the pilot, it's not so much yourself. I mean, there's not a lot that you can do to affect the safety, avoiding the risk of flying, right? Except I, I know that my wife, she, she told my mother once uh, that... Um, that the one thing that I wish I will hear on the PA, the, the public address system in, on the plane, is one of the flight attendants calling, is there a pilot on board? <laughs> My wife believes that that's the one thing that I want to hear. I don't know. Maybe. So it, it's not so much yourself, again, unless you're the pilot. It's God. You know, the weather. Not having birds get sucked into the plane or or break the windshield, or, or just in general, you know, we we trust God to guide the pilot, to guide those who built the plane, and and to be in charge. And and that varies from person to person. Some would put a higher level of trust in God. Some would put low, lower. Then it's the pilots. You you trust the pilots that they know what they're doing, that how they're flying that plane. You trust air traffic controllers to keep them separated. Heck, you trust other pilots to follow the directions that they're getting and not crashing into your not crash into your plane. Then you trust the plane, and that's kind of uh, more complicated because you don't really trust the plane itself. You trust the the people who designed the plane. 
You trust the people who built it, the people who maintained it, the people who certified it, who tested the FAA maybe for certification and so on. Those are the, the things that you trust. It's, it's really people. So you don't really, even when you're sitting on a chair, it's not that you trust the chair, that the chair will not break. You really are not trusting the chair. You're, you're trusting the people who made this chair and, and the materials or the people who chose the materials. So it's, it's always, it comes down to people. So it's you, it's God, it's people whether it's people you know or people you don't know, but that's who you trust that would prevent you from dying when you fly. With that, let's start digging into the specific incidents that I promised I'll talk about. We're going to start with Continental Flight uh, 1713 in 1987. And before I start, I'll talk about trust law number five, trust is transferable. When we trust somebody who trusts somebody else and tells us that they trust that other person, we will trust that other person. What do we know about the pilot? I mean, we must trust the pilot when we're on a plane, right? We don't know the pilot. So how do we trust the pilot? Well, we don't trust the pilot directly. We trust the airline, in our case here, Continental Airlines. They trust the pilot because they hired them, they trained them, and, and they test them. And therefore, we trust the pilot. Trust is transferable. So I'm going to take you to November 15 of 1987, Continental Flight 1713. It's a DC-9 taking off from Denver. There was uh, some icing. There was some miscommunication with the tower. Uh, the plane took off. The, the first officer, the, the pilot sitting in the right seat, was in control took off, too steep of an angle, the plane stalled, dropped, killing both pilots, one flight attendant and 25 passengers, and, and injured, obviously, a lot more. The NTSB found that even though there was some icing on the wings that was a little more than was allowed because they were only supposed to wait 20 minutes from or take off within 20 minutes from the moment they were de-iced. It took about, I think, 27 minutes. I'm, I'm not 100% uh, sure I remember it correctly. But um, but the bottom line, the, FA, the, the uh, NTSB said that uh, it wasn't enough ice for this plane to not be able to fly. It was that the first officer took off in too steep of an angle for the conditions. Now, I'm going to read from the NTSB report. The FAA requires air carriers to conduct security checks of pilot applicants before employment. These checks must include, at the minimum, reference and prior employment histories. By the way, there is no requirement to verify previous flight experience or to determine an applicant's FAA accident incident history or enforced enforcement history, previous employer's pilot training and performance records. Uh, and this this is what we're talking about beyond five years. So th they need to check be, uh, in, in the last five years. So in other words, for the airline to trust the pilot, once again, we're going into transferable trust. They do reference checks. And, and you know, in, in other places, employment places, you do the same thing. You check references. Where did you work before? Let's talk to them. Let's see what they say about you. So 
they checked the previous airline and here's the previous airline and th this is the part that talks about the previous airline or the employment of that pilot with the previous airline in march 1985 the first officer's employment as a pilot and this is with the previous airline not continental was terminated let me say this again was terminated that pilot was fired from the previous airline because he failed a part 135 check after 30 hours of training the company's chief flight instructor stated that the first officer experienced habitual difficulties he says more that he made little progress in training because he repeated the same mistakes they add that he had a chronic problem of stepping on the wrong rudder and becoming disoriented and he described the first officer as tense and unable to cope with deviations from the routine let me repeat that not word for word that pilot that the first officer the first officer in continental um 1713 when he was employed with the previous airline first of all he was fired because he was not a good pilot he was fired because he was not a good pilot and, and they describe what okay keep that in mind so he applies to continental and in july of 1987 which is the year of the accident i mean the accident happened four months later in July of 87, Continental does a background check with the previous airline. Remember, the airline from which the pilot was fired because he was not a good pilot. Here is from the report, the, the background check. In answer to the question, did the subject, subject being the pilot, leave on his or her own accord? Now, you already know that he was terminated, so the answer should be no. The answer was yes. So the previous airline said that he left, not that he was fired because he was a good, he was a bad pilot. In answer to the question in the report, would the subject be eligible to rehire, which obviously the previous airline would not, the answer was yes. And finally, and this, this is really amazing, the quality of the first officer the, the first officer's work was described as very good not good very good so the previous airline tells continental this is a very good pilot he left on his own and they completely ignore the fact that he was a very bad pilot and that he was terminated because he was a bad pilot pilot That cost the lives of both pilots, one flight attendant, and 25 passengers. So I'm going to extend transferable trust, the, the fifth law of trust here, and say we trust Continental. The passengers trusted Continental Airlines. Continental Airlines trusted the previous employer, the previous airline, who said that they trusted the pilot. That was broken because they didn't and continental airlines that relied on that transferable trust from the previous employer was misinformed why do we do that and, and this doesn't just happen in airlines and you know i hope that it happens less now than before and I don't really know typically what happens after an NTSB investigation is things change to make sure that something like this does not happen again. 
One of the biggest reasons is liability. A company prefers not to give a bad reference of a former employee so that if the employee doesn't get the new job, the employee will not sue the previous employer. And we completely ignore the consequences of doing that. So this is one story of trust in aviation. And that story had cost the lives of two pilots, one flight attendant and 25 passengers, not to mention all the, the injuries. Second case. Now, I, I can just tell you the details without mentioning who it was, but I already told you. This is JFK Jr. You may remember he was flying his own uh, Piper Saratoga that I believe he owned that plane. It's a pretty advanced, uh, even though it's a single single prop uh, plane, uh, single engine plane, it's, it's you know, a very high end. I mean, th this is a plane that costs in the millions. So again, from the NTSB report of that accident, you you, you may remember that he uh, was flying. He crashed into the uh, the ocean uh, right outside of uh, Martha Martha's Vineyard on July 16, nineteen ninety nine, about twenty one forty one. That's nine forty one p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. A Piper PA thirty two R three hundred one Saratoga two tail number doesn't matter, was destroyed when it crashed into the Atlantic Ocean approximately seven and a half miles southwest of Gay, Gayhead, Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. The, certifi the certificated private pilot and two passengers received fatal in injuries. In other words, they died. Night visual meteorological conditions, VMC, prevailed. It goes on to say the pilot obtained his private pilot certificate for airplane single engine land in April of 98. So we're talking about a year earlier. Funny, you know, I just realized that um, I got my license in 99, the year after. He did not possess an instrument rating. So he was not qualified to, to or certified, I should say, really, uh, to fly in the conditions that may have occurred. He was flying at night. Uh, I read the report. There was haze. The visibility was not great. The report spends a lot of time talking about something that's called spatial disorientation. Spatial as in S-P-A-T-I-A-L. So from space, disorientation. So it says, according to an FAA instrument flying handbook advisory, I'm not going to go to the details, one purpose for instrument training and maintaining instrument proficiency is to prevent the pilot from being misled by several types of hazardous illusions that are peculiar to flight. Uh, it states that uh, an illusion or false impression occurs when information provided by sensory organs. We have things in our ears that, that give us a sense of acceleration. You know when, when you fly on a simulator uh, that sometimes you, you start feeling sick? The reason you feel sick is because your eyes tell you one thing, which is what the, the TV screen wants to show you, but your ears, uh, I believe it's called the vestibular area, they give you different, uh, different information, and that misalignment of information causes you to, to feel sick. So we have that, and it says that... Um, that information provided by sensory organs is misinterpreted or inadequate and 
that many illusions in flight could be created by complex motions and certain visual scenes encountered under adverse uh, weather conditions and at night be because you don't you don't have a lot of visibility of what's happening outside and and you know it, it's so much easier when it's during daytime and there are no clouds there's no nothing and you can see where the ground is and where the sky is not so much at night not so much when you have uh, uh less than perfect uh, meteorological uh, conditions so the visibility is is low um it also states that some illusions may lead to special disorientation or the inability to determine accurately the attitude or motion of the aircraft in relation to the Earth's surface. The AC, that, that's an advisory circular, it's a document that create, created by the FAA, further states that the most hazardous illusions that lead to special disorientation are created by information received from motion sensing systems such as located in each inner ear. It also states that sensory organs in these systems detect angular acceleration in the pitch, yaw, and roll axes, and a sensory organ detects gravity and linear acceleration, and that, in flight, the motion-sensing system may be stimulated by motion of the aircraft alone or in combination with head and body movement. Um, I'll keep going. The AC also states that these undesirable sensations cannot be completely prevented but they can be ignored and that's the key point they can be ignored or sufficiently suppressed by pilots developing an absolute reliance upon what the flight instruments are reporting about the attitude of their aircraft um let's see uh yeah i don't need to to read the the, the other part this this really is the key part your ears are telling you something that's not real. The instruments tell you something that is real. Uh, the instruments don't lie. <laughs> Until we get to the next story. But for now, the instruments don't lie. Where does it leave us? You remember who you trust? You trust as a pilot, not as a passenger. As a passenger, you have to trust the pilot and the plane uh, and the weather and God and, and everything else. But uh, as a pilot, you do have to trust yourself. There is a component of trusting yourself. But what do you do when you trust yourself? You trust the instruments or the plane and they provide you with conflicting information. Well, what happened in this case is due to not enough experience you know remember he got his license in 98 crash took place in 99 he was barely a, a one-year pilot he flies a very complex plane a very high power plane he gets into conditions meteorological conditions that prevent his eyes from seeing especially at night what really is going on but he continues to rely on his own sense through his ears, ignoring what I just told you, that we know that your ears are going to mislead you here and you need to rely on the instruments. He's not willing to uh, delegate trust to the instruments over what his body tells him. He continues to rely on himself and because of that, he crashes. He enters what's called a vertigo. He does not know where up is, where down is. Um, and, and he crashes, killing everybody on board. 
So this is another case of trust in aviation. You need to know when you trust the instruments. When you know and, and you have to convince yourself that you cannot trust yourself and you cannot trust those senses coming from your ears. You feel that the plane is doing one thing, in, in reality it's doing something else. By the way, there have been so many, and, and I'm, I'm not talking about you know, a private pilot with one year experience, commercial pilots that made similar mistakes and crashing the plane and killing everybody on board. Okay, so trust the instruments, right? Don't trust yourself, trust the instruments. And this takes us to the crashes of the Boeing 737 MAX. This time we're talking about the MAX 8. So I'm not talking about what happened with Alaska Airlines. I'm actually not going to talk about that. But uh, remind you of two crashes, two consecutive crashes that happened within less than six months of one another, less than even five months of one another. On October 29, 2018, Lion Air Flight 610 was a Boeing 737 MAX 8 crashed in the Java Sea shortly after takeoff from uh, Soekarno Hatta International Airport in Jakarta, Indonesia. All 189 passengers and crew died and the airplane was destroyed, which, you know, you kind of would expect the airplane to be destroyed. Not even five months later, on March 10th of 2019, so the investigation is still ongoing, but this time Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302, a Boeing 737 MAX 8 again, Ethiopian registration, crashed near Egera, Ethiopia. I'm, I'm not sure I'm saying this right, but shortly after takeoff from the Addis Abeba Boli International Airport in Ethiopia, all 157 passengers and crew on board died and the airplane was destroyed. So one thing to say, uh, you, you may ask yourself, uh, why is the NTSB involved with a crash in Indonesia or in um, uh, the other one in Ethiopia? Well, what happens is there are a few different uh, entities that have jurisdiction. It depends on who made the plane, and Boeing makes the planes in the U.S., so that, that gives some jurisdiction to the NTSB. The final report comes from an EAIB, uh, another organization, but based on ICAO, ICAO uh, International something, aviation uh, organization, maybe commercial uh, aviation organization. Uh, they give, they provide for cooperation among different uh, entities, and and you know the NTSB is very well versed, very experienced in in conducting investigations like that. So they get involved. So they didn't write the report. The NTSB did not write the report. They were, they wrote things that were submitted and included in the, the report. So so the report I'm reading right now is not from the NTSB. It's the part that the NTSB contributed. So according to that. Um, Electrical problems that existed since the time of the accident airplane's production, since production time, caused the left angle of attack sensor heater to fail, which resulted in the angle of attack sensor providing erroneous values that caused the MCAS. MCAS uh, stands for, um, uh, what is it? It's um, ah, somewhere here I have the... Uh, the uh, the definition of what AMCAS. AMCAS is really a software uh, piece that that runs on the uh, computer, on on the airplane's computer, and essentially what it does is this: 
Uh, and I'm not going to go too deep into the design of the Boeing 737 MAX 8, but the way it was designed, uh, it's a very powerful plane relative to other 737s. It has a tendency to pitch up, so kind of raise the nose when when you apply a lot of power, full power, which is what you do during takeoff. Both of those, by the way, happen at takeoff. And what the AMCAS system does is it lowers the nose of the plane uh, to, um, uh, to, to protect from stalling the plane. Well, what happened there was that the AMCAS relies on angle of attack sensors. So sensors that tell the plane or, or the system uh, what is the angle of the plane. So is it pitching up or, or down or whatever? And if it's pitching up too much, then it would push the nose down against pilot inputs. Okay. And what happened in, in that flight is that the pilots were fighting the AMCAS system because now, by the way, nobody blamed the AMCAS system itself. What they said is the AMCAS said the lack of pilot training did not trigger the, the accident. However, it was the failure of the angle of attack sensors to fail on the accident flight. AMCAS would not have activated and the accident would not have occurred if those sensors were not faulty. So something happened. Those sensors did not operate right. They told the AMCAS system that they need to push the nose down. The pilots were fighting it all the way. And that's that's what the investigation shows. Uh, the, the black boxes uh, showed uh, the pilots were fighting it. Now, we're talking brand new planes. The pilots were fighting it. Um, there was not enough training, by the way, but but again, once once again, it should not have happened if it wasn't for the sensors. You remember what I told you about the previous uh, story, the JFK uh, Jr. crash? You have to trust the instruments. Well, sometimes you don't, and and that's a problem. Right now. In order for those two crashes not to have happened, the pilots had to ignore what the system was doing. By the way, there was a uh, a crash of a, an Airbus 330, a uh, an Air France uh, Airbus flying from Brazil to Paris. And what happened there was uh, more similar to, to what happened with JFK Jr., and that was uh, that the pilots were fighting the, the plane. But once again, there was an instrument that was faulty. In that case, it was the, uh, the pitot tube, uh, the one that, that tells what the airspeed is. So it is a dilemma. Y you know, on one hand, you need to trust the instruments and go against what your inner ear, what, what your sensors in, in your head tell you. Your sensors tell you that you're in a certain attitude. You have to ignore it purposely and trust the instruments. On the other hand, you have two crashes of Boeing 737s, brand new ones, because the pilots trusted the system or because of the system. Once again, we got trust. We got trust issues. Now, there's one more thing that, that I, I feel that I have to say 
And that is Boeing is running through those issues. So first there were those two crashes with 737 MAX 8s. And I don't know if you remember, but those planes were just grounded on all airlines until this gets resolved. There's a whole issue of did they cut corners to get the plane certified? Was the FAA complacent or compliant in, in allowing this to happen? Uh, I mean, those are bigger engines, and, and what they did was something that you may not want to do, but you had to do if you wanted to really not have to recertify the plane, but just say, oh, it's a small change, small variation. Well, all of those things together kind of, you know, no matter how you look at it, you, you go and you look back at Boeing and, and you ask if you can trust planes made by Boeing. Now, I do. I just flew... After the Alaska 737 MAX 9 issue with, with the uh, door plug that, that came out uh, in flight, uh, I still flew 737s. But the problem here is that for most people, they look at it and they go, it's Boeing 737. Go even a step further, it's Boeing 737 MAX. One crash in, uh, in Indonesia, another crash in... Uh, Ethiopia, killing between the two of them more than 300 people. And then you have the issue with the MAX 9 in Alaska. There is a problem here. There is an issue with trust where you heard the phrase, fool me once, shame on, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. So now we as passengers or users of 737s, we start asking ourselves, uh, did they just violate our trust, betray our trust twice. You know, when you lose trust, you may not regain it again. I'm not saying you never will regain. You may not regain it again. You might not regain it again. But if you do, you're under a microscope to not lose it a second time. Losing trust a second time may be harder, if not impossible, to recover from. I feel for Boeing. I hope they do recover from it. I hope they do get their trust back. Let me summarize. Every time we get on board a plane, we must trust. We must trust the pilot. We must trust the plane. More specifically, the people who designed the plane, the built the plane, tested the plane, maintained the plane, certified the plane. We trust God for the weather and, and not having birds and maybe to guide the pilots or, or anyone involved with it. As a pilot, you have to trust the instruments, but also yourself to know when not to trust the instrument. Because sometimes trusting yourself and trusting the instruments may conflict. Hopefully in this episode, I gave you uh, some perspective on how my relative trust model applies to aviation in general. And I want to finish with what I started with, that statement on the inspirational picture that's hanging in my room of the F-18 that just landed on an aircraft carrier that says, trust the only quality that matters when it's down to the wire. That's it for today. May trust be with you. This was The Trust Show.
What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll answer it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get notified when I release a new episode. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings help not only you, but also others looking for podcasts just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my workshops, online courses, books, or go to my website, trusthabits.com. And remember that the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening or watching The Trust Show.